step out on the street, into your neighborhood market, into your favorite bar, into the depths of the DMV, find 10 strangers, find some courage, ask them what their favorite film noir is. This exercise, of course, will go about how you expect. And yet, for as hard as it might seem to explain, indeed, how many episodes are we deep in this podcast still sussing it out ourselves? Virtually every one of those people you walk up to will have more familiarity with the genre than it initially seems. Why? Because for decades now, cinematic tropes of noir have been everywhere. We're positively marinating in them. Know it or not, they've become part of our vocabulary. We know this because we can laugh about it. And we do, often, very often, as the case goes with tonight's two entries. Humor relies on familiarity, turning that awareness on its head for its own ends. We wouldn't laugh repeatedly when a hard-boiled narrator calls out his own contrivances, not unless we had some base of understanding for what those contrivances were. Which brings us to the toast of the evening, Shane Black, a director and writer obsessively versed in the trappings of the genre, and thus determined to invert them in the wiliest of ways. Our two films tonight will fold in several decades worth of crime hijinks, served up to us with a knowing wink and a severed finger. We'll laugh, we'll cheer, and by the end, that cinematic vocabulary will have expanded just a little bit more. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt. Where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight, believe it or not, we've got our first episode of the show devoted to a single director. As Tristan implied in the intro, we're going to be taking a closer look at the work of Shane Black, who in both writing and rhythm has cemented himself as a major voice within modern crime capers. We're kicking off the discussion with Black's directorial debut, Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang. Let's go. Hurry up. It's not my fault. Just shut up and run. Hold it right there. Harry was a small-time crook. Oh, boy. Till he opened the door. Oh, no, no. We're not ready for your audition. Just take him. He's ready. You ready, right? To a really big break. Quit acting like the good guy. You got your partner killed. You killed him. See, this is what I'm talking about. Old school method. Give me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. Oh, you're the uh, consultant. If he wants to act the part. You must be Gabe Perry. Still gay? Me? No. I just like the name so much. I can't get rid of it. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was released in 2005. It's directed by Shane Black. Stars Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer, Michelle Monaghan, Corbin Burnson. Um, so our plot, we have Harry, played by Robert Downey Jr., um, having one of those uh, only-in-L.A. kind of stories, which lands him at a ritzy Hollywood party in the company of Gay Perry, a private eye who has been hired to give him some training in advance of a screen test. From there, he reconnects with a child's crush, gets caught up in the case of her sister's supposed suicide, and in the case of a body dumped mysteriously in a lake. These cases inevitably intertwine, Harry takes a lot of beatings, 
and through sheer motormouth charisma, inadvertently shapes the as yet unformed Marvel Cinematic Universe. But uh, that's another story. So, Fred, uh, what is your relationship with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Uh, so as with last week in Brick, this is a movie I watched in college shortly after it came out. And it's interesting now that we're getting to the point of movies that that are ones that we would have had access to as teens and adults. And so we're actually old enough to legally go watch them um, and can remember when they came out. And but no, I, I really enjoyed it at the time. As, as you mentioned, it plays with the tropes and the conventions of a genre I love. So, of course, I was primed for it. Um, and actually, no, I I watched this in high school. Now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure I watched this in high uh, school. I watched um, it my freshman year of of college, um, and uh, and I I distinctly recall going like right after it came out on DVD, um, going to the little back room video rental store in the convenience store inside in my campus uh, in my dorm building. And checking it out from there and taking it back to my dorm. Uh, See, Tristan's just right a little bit older than me, and I got it on DVD too. But when I was in high school and I watched it with my high school friends, I, I just uh, didn't remember. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's a movie that I really enjoyed. I actually watched it again a few years ago. I introduced my wife to it and discovered it had not aged well. There are parts of it that are still a lot of fun, but there are parts of it was like, oh, we were we were laughing at different things back then. Not That's that it was true. right. Not that it was right to back then, but we we had a different relation to a, a, the you know white middle class culture had a different relationship to a lot of different things than we do today. Uh, it is it is fascinating rewatching this because I have not seen it since on the other side of Robert Downey Jr.'s ascent. That too. Um, it it is so it is so strange to like kind of take that time capsule back and see. What is basically Tony Stark? Um, in, but he's so small, in, it, it, right? It's, it's, but, it's like post rehab, pre workout regimen, and it's so funny to be like, "That's right. That's what that's what that's, he used to look like." Yeah, uh, and uh, but his 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 cadence and his uh, and and yes. his charisma is all is all already that template for what um, clearly John Favreau was like. I I need this in my movie and. Uh, and and it's hard to imagine without this that same kind of patter that he develops here, uh, that knowing wink at the audience that carries on through Tony Stark like that that becomes mar- Marvel that we know it. <laughs> uh, so it's weird going back and for, like having forgotten how much of that you know his his mm-hmm. um, rehabilitation came started here really right. But, Oh, totally. And uh, and it works. And he's great. Like, this is such a showcase for him. And it's such a smart starring vehicle. And uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so uh, so Shane Black, of course, are, um, he's the, uh, the writer of Lethal Weapon and The Last Boy Scout. Um, this others. Is his, I mean, this is his first uh, his first directorial gig. Um, yes. And it took him a long time to get this made. Uh, he, um, he made it for 15 million. Um, it's based loosely on a classic noir novel, um, Bodies Where You Find Them by Brett Halliday, uh, loosely. Um, I, I've not read it, so I can't really, uh, tell where, where things overlap or not, but Gabe Harry is a character invented entirely for, for the sake of, of this. And, and 
Uh, Black's idea was he wanted to foreground. He wanted to take a macho detective that that um, that uh, is the coolest guy in the room that will that will talk right back to Robert Downey Jr.'s smart ass and um, and he wanted to make him gay just because he hadn't seen that kind of thing before. Of course, we get a whole lot of uh, of gay jokes flying left and right, but ultimately, I do think that there's a, a spirit of uh, of love behind it. Uh, it just yes. some of them yes. land some some of them land a little uh, questionably. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think even more so than that is the movie's relationship with women, which I think the second part of tonight's episode, Black does a much better job and he's a bit older kind of parsing the the film's relationship to women and especially naked women um the but yeah i, I think a just I, I don't think black's impact as a screenwriter can be understated like yes lethal weapon super successful but more than that like his impact on other writers he was introduced a generation of writers to really having a voice on the page it's a famous line in in Lethal Weapon in the action line that's uh, he's describing the the bad guy's house and he's like, "It's the kind of house that I'm going to buy after I sell this script for a million dollars." And it, I mean, it was it was electric in that moment. It was it was a style of screenwriting that nobody was doing, and has since, like I said, it, it's a generation or more of, of screenwriters have really taken from that, and uh, that was what helped make Max Landis big. It was one of the big things about Damon Lindelof when he started off was that he was, he had a really strong voice in the page. And um, it's, it's, again, it can't be understated how much he sort of changed the way writers approached screenwriting. Uh, I also find it fascinating that he's, you know, referencing the Chandler titles, because to me, this is much more in the mold of my camera than it is Chandler. Yeah. uh, But he's clearly, he, he's clearly so in, he finds that the old genre so so endearing. He finds uh, like I, I think he just can't help himself and wants to wants to to put that onto the page. He wants that. Uh, he definitely he, spreads the love around, but he, like the he, you know the books his, that they're discussed, like the the um, Gossamer books, feels much more Hammer and how the pulpy they are. Well, the, and and they're the brute force of the protagonists is right. very Hammer. Um, and even the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang itself as a movie is. I would say pulpier than the various Chandler adaptations that we've looked at, right? Like it is Chandler's like the Chandler is the gold standard. And I mean that in the, like people, people can, not that people are looking at it and they're like, Oh, lady of the lake, lady in the lake. That's Mm -hmm. a, that's a Chandler novel, but, but he is, he he is, and always will just feel like the, that reference point. Right. More so than touchstone. I totally agree. It, 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 I just find it, I just find it interesting. Right. But I agree that like, if you were like, I, the jury, is not going to land as a chapter title in the same way that Lady in the Lake will, if you're familiar with the, even passingly familiar with the genre. Um, and, and, and ultimately he's, uh, and I, again, I, I, I don't really know that much about Brett Halliday, so I don't know his hallmarks as much that, that, uh, that come from his novels. Uh, but, um, but truly this does, it, it feels like Black is really smartly carrying through a lot of elements from the from classic noir of uh, the narration, of course, which we tee up right from the beginning with with Robert Downey Jr. kind of calling himself out on it. I'll be your narrator, and and, 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 and he's a bad there. one at it too. Yep, uh, two cases, 
intertwining um, as as they do. Uh, the um, the Christmas backdrop, which we get to pull back in from from something we haven't seen in a while, but was was certainly a recurring theme in. Which, a lot of Cameron, that was the first eye of the jury, right? The first eye of the jury, they moved to New York and said during Christmas for some reason. Uh, no, that was, um, no, it was eye of the jury, but it was also Lady in the Lake, the film adaptation yeah, was said during Christmas. Both Lady, of those Lady were. Lady in the Lake gives us a really superficial Christmas. That, yeah, right. Uh, and and it is, it's pretty much just window dressing here. Uh, you could you could set it at another time of year, but it, it just adds another little festive It's the same thing, right? I mean, that, that is his his thing throughout, right, is the, the tension and juxtaposition of a wholesome holiday and swearing and skullduggery and, and that sort of thing. I, I just love the the Christmas Christmas in LA, which to me is mm. so it's also so foreign. Like everything everything that is a Christmas movie ever is set in a place with snow and right. uh and and you know typical holiday cheer and and it's just so removed from that that it's funny to to watch that layer kind of exist within the the, the world. Totally, but it's also a, a, a Shane Blackism, right? Like it is just such a classic. It's a classic hymn. It is. Uh, but I think it works uh, too. It works. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Um, I, I appreciate that element to it. Uh, I think especially the, uh, you know, I think it highlights uh, his the uh, Harry's foreignness because of, you know, he's at a Christmas party, but it's at a pool, or then. Um, when he's at that, like the party where he insults everybody and it's like a bunch of models doing body art and contortionist routines. Um, but they're also like vaguely Christmas themed, like one's kind of dressed as a reindeer, but she's naked. And, um, you know, so again, it's just sort of highlighting the, like the LA weird LA movie where we're back firmly in the realm of Los Angeles. It feels mm-hmm. good. Um, I, I think black, uh, clearly this is going to be a, a, a recurring theme tonight, um, as it has been all season, but LA just gets to, to kind of shine here. You get like little vignettes, like, um, early on, like, like seeing the, the robot, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and her like showing up at her, her apartment. I mean, the, that's just the cutaway gags. Yeah. Yeah. Weird weird things like that that feel like this only happens in LA or mm-hmm. this this can only happen in this make believe land that our detective is is navigating um and hollywood uh as we we talked about earlier in the season how hollywood increasingly felt like it it was also part it it like had to be part of these LA noirs it had worked its way in and that's certainly the case tonight yeah i was actually just, i was just listening to an old interview between um Karen Kusama and uh, Christopher Nolan for mm. it was part of the press cycle for Destroyer, her Nicole Kidman detective mm. movie, uh, which hopefully we'll get to at some point. But uh, one of the things that she mentioned there was how they really wanted to shoot the real LA in De- Destroyer, and so they really went about trying to make sure that they're they they brought in the location scout very early in the pre-production process so they could lock in locations that weren't the usual thing that you picture when you think of LA, which is frequently Hollywood, right? Like that is the industry most associated with LA. And it is, and so it is such an easy way to be like LA, we're going to go on a film set at some point, 
or here, it's going to be the most of it is going to be the the wheeling and dealing behind the film set. Um, and so it's just it's interesting hearing that interview and then discussing this as sort of the, the counterpoint of what she's talking about, where it is the much more like the houses in the house in the hills with the beautiful pools and the uh, you know the 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 freeway and like all the all the more classical signposts of LA that you can run that you can go on the run duck into and what seems like an abandoned building and accidentally find yourself in a screen test uh, well, that's in New York and, though right like that's that's what he's in New York oh 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 yeah oh well and they fly him out that's that still feels like that would be all. Uh, I mean, it's all. I guess it's all part of the the Hollywood the landscape. Movie magic. Still, yeah. This doesn't work without Robert Downey Jr. Of course, being that like that that charismatic anchor point. Uh, he is. Um, it's a great. It's a great performance, and it's a great like I'm back performance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it just like every every tool in his toolbox is is being used here to perfect end. Yeah, I mean, this time around. For for him, I really loved the audition scene where he walks in on the audition. Like that, to me, he's he's playing a bunch of different registers and he's doing it really well. Like the rest of the movie, he's really fun and entertaining. And like you said, it is so much a preview of the next fifteen years of his career. But that that moment, and he gets to like be real, but also play the joke, but also get some reaction shots in when the cop comes in. Like it's all in that scene. You're like, this is why this guy is like is is supremely talented. Yeah, um, and he is Harry is not Harry's not a good person. Um, right. No one no one would like look at this and think that except you except you're kind of fooled into it because he he talks so fast and he uh, and he kind of wins well, you like, over. Kinda... Define good person, right? Like he has a right. he has a moral code that he follows. Like he might be a thief, but he uh, and he does kill some people in cold blood um <laughs> although actually no he's he kills him accidentally i'm thinking of the other movie tonight where they kill somebody in cold blood right or does he kill somebody no he does kill somebody in cold blood right after the after she dies he after the assassin kills the pink-haired girl he kills him um yes. but that's, i mean I, that that's in cold all, blood but also that's it's pretty clear that that would have gone very poorly for him if he hadn't Right. And it's also again like more like there's there's still kind of a moral code that's happening and like him with uh Michelle Monaghan, like right, like there is the knight errant still is present here. Yeah, he's he's on he doesn't cross I don't think that that line of, of like what the we can very accept low bar of, of like <laughs> of like sexual assault. But, but um but but he does he does, you know, win us over and win us over hard. Uh, yes. and, uh, and, and, you know, through, through force of narration, through, um, through force of, of taking a bunch of hits, including losing his finger, um, this, uh, this keeps coming up and it really does, it, uh, it feels like, like in, in ways films like keep having to top this, but like our detective gets the shit beat out of him over and over again as, as these movies, as this series progresses. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I probably, I would trace it back to, well, I guess, yeah, the neo-noir movement, right? Like, he'd, like, occasionally take a hit, but he'd throw a punch, too, in the classic noir era, but starting with Chinatown and The Long Goodbye, like, 
Chinatown especially with the nose, but long goodbye, he gets worked over a bit, especially by the cops. And it just, yeah, you're right. It just kind of builds from there that in the same way that Chinatown sets up the like LA land deal as a trope with the genre, it also sets up the detective looks like shit by the end of the movie uh, trope where it is like, He's not a real PI unless he he goes through hell over the our, course of our history. detective is is mortal. Um, except except here maybe not because and I guess we should talk about Val Kilmer and uh, and and especially like the end and and how and when what we make of that like final final scene and cap on it all. Yeah, I'm really uh, curious about that. Like where where that where that impulse did come from? If that was a studio thing or if that was I. I I just don't know if, if Black wanted to keep him around. Maybe he hoped to be able to do more, as the little end sequence kind of suggests. But um, I'm not going to lie. I'm glad. I love Val Kilmer in this. Like, the, each time I watch it, the more I appreciate what Val Kilmer's doing and just, like, how much it works because of Val Kilmer. Uh, yeah, because for all of the talk, for all for all that this, you know, helped relaunch Robert Downey Jr.'s career and reputation, right, um, this... Uh, and, and this is a testament to him too, um, and it's a testament to Black. Ev- this is a team effort. Um, mm-hmm. Every uh, Robert Downey Jr. shtick doesn't work without Kilmer and Monaghan to anchor him in mm-hmm. in different ways. And, and, and take the piss out of him. Yeah, um, exactly. You can't have anyone that's that that's that arrogant um, that can go totally unchecked. And Kilmer is great at holding him in check. Um, and and like. It's like a a brick wall that that Robert Downey Jr. can't run through. It's just like a perfectly pitched performance, and uh, and his just yeah his his straight man, like kind of straight man sarcastic routine is is so and just how fed up he gets with Harry again and again and again is what really helps power this movie through and just lets you enjoy it without being overwhelmed by by what Downey Jr. is doing. And that, again, like this is all very calibrated by this by by both of them and by shane black like it's all intentional and it all works great yeah and um and and michelle monaghan really does um does uh bring a whole lot to what could easily have been a more thankless role but i i think that i like like you you watch it and uh and you can every time she's on screen she's she's just effortlessly uh kind of drawing drawing your attention you're you're hooked um, on what she's saying, just because she because everything Robert Downey Jr. is is spewing feels so ridiculous that um, that she is like the logical counterbalance to that. Uh, and she's and, funny. Like it's, and she's it's really funny. Yeah, she it's, uh, somebody's letterbox but, review I follow was like credit to Black too for, for uh, yes, you know, totally. good episode uh, dialogue. But yeah, somebody's letterbox review I read it was like, why didn't studios let her be funny more often? Instead, she's just in really morose and I uh, like still good stuff, but like she doesn't, she doesn't get to cut loose like this again, for, at least from what I've seen. And, and it's, it's, it's a shame. Yeah. Like, at least Val Kilmer gets to do MacGruber. <laughs> so, so what, what do we make of the, the, the final scene as we, as we, when Abraham Lincoln comes in? <laughs> yes. <laughs> as we, as we carry through, uh, bringing bringing back the dead. Uh, I think it does break the movie a little bit. Like even just that act of bringing in everybody else who died, and then bringing in Lincoln. Like it's poking fun at itself, but it's it's still a 
degree of narrative power that Harry has not had throughout the right, right? Like there's never been an indication that Harry's messing with the reality of the story. It's just him being right. a bad narrator. And this is him like messing with reality. And so it's, that's always kind of bumped me um, on a dramatic stakes level. I don't mind that Kilmer lives. I'm not like, oh, that I, I want really... Kilmer to live because I want to imagine them having further adventures right. together. Exactly. Right. And and I do take it as actually having happened, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that's an, supposed to be an invention of Harry's because we get that last direct-to-camera thing. So I... It, it does feel like it gives it it, it, it gives Black a uh, means to, like, have one final joke. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't need that joke. It, mm-hmm. uh, it, to me, to me, uh, you know, we had jokes plenty. They were good ones. Uh, and... Um, and and I don't know that it needs to skew that humorous at the very at the very end with bringing everyone else back in too. Right. Yeah. Like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. If he hadn't made that joke, it probably wouldn't have bumped me as much, right? If it had just been him being like, "I know you'd be surprised that he lived, but he did," and it just kind of hung a lantern on it and then moved on, I'd have been like, "Yeah, all right. Like it's funny enough. I, I'm willing to roll with it. And I like the character a lot. So, um, and I'm not." Again, it doesn't feel like Harry's arc is weakened because the sacrifice of his friend is is lessened or whatever, right? It's not like that stole power from the ending by having Val Kilmer live. So I'm like, yeah, sure. Before we move into the next one, this is kind of a good segue point too, because uh, very common uh, or very very much the same DNA. Um, we have not had too many detective duos mm-hmm. in our, uh, and certainly if we stretch back to classic noir. We really don't. Um, yeah, we've got Thin Man and and Nick and Nora, but that's its own pre noir. Own... And yeah, and traditionally, like at most, we would see, you know, his Girl Friday esque with like my camera, where you've got uh, what's her name, not Velma, but I can't think of her name. But you know, the 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 Girl Friday that that right. is his his trusted they... right hand. And this isn't a, a Sherlock and Watson kind of scenario either. Mm-hmm. There's no there. There's no great brain and uh, and, and his his more um, sober well, anchor point. Uh, there, I mean, not not not. No, in that relationship sense. is not being repeated. But there is um, definitely a more but, and less competent. <laughs> yes, that's true. But uh, but this is definitely in the buddy cop realm, which is yes. which is what Shane Black is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're now weaving in another another angle of uh, of detective fiction that uh, that we haven't really been covering previously, but it's something that Black is a big fan of, is really good at, and uh, and and it hinges here. Uh, so much of the detective duo and its charm hinges on being really good at casting, mm-hmm. and and having two actors that can really. Uh, bounce off each other in exactly the right way, and uh, and Black's got that here, and he's certainly got that in our our next entry too that we're about to cover. Uh, <laughs> before we move on, is there anything else you want to cap off? No, I agree. Like it is, it is Shane Black's spin on the Pulp Detective story, and part of that is going to be Christmas, and part of that is going to be uh, an interesting mismatched pair that that give the opportunity for a lot of banter and a lot of fun. And it works great here, and it works great in the next one. Yeah. Uh, and that next one, by the way, is The Nice Guys. So without further ado, let's roll the trailer. You're a private investigator? My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. That is a lot of, that's a lot of blood. 
beat people up and charge money? Yeah, sad, isn't it? How much would you charge to beat up my friend Janet? What? How much you got? Twenty bucks. That's good. This conversation no is over. The mob is trying to spread its operation to Los Angeles. Somehow, my daughter Amelia is involved. Please find her. You seen this girl? Who's in it for me? Oh, we can do this the easy way. Ow! We're currently doing it the easy way. Whatever happened to offering me twenty bucks? It's the recession. The nice Guys is released in 2016. Once again, directed by Shane Black. Stars Russell Crowe, Ryan Gosling, Anjuri Rice, Margaret Qualley, Matt Bomer, Keith David, and Kim Basinger. Just to give us another little, little bit of uh, neo-noir cred. Ryan Gosling plays Private Eye. Holland March clashes in the opening act with Russell Crowe's hired enforcer, Jackson Healy over the search for a person of interest in the murder of porn star Misty Mountains. That person of interest, Amelia Kuttner, has some serious ties to Misty over a film they were collaborating on. It turns out her boyfriend has also recently been dispatched with in a fire. Amelia goes missing. Her mother, Justice Department official, hires Holland and Jackson to track her down. There's a whole lot more to it than that, including a hitman played by Matt Bomer tracking down everyone involved in the covert film and a brewing conspiracy by the auto industry. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred, what's your experience with The Nice Guys? Uh, I'm pretty sure I watched this in theaters, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I was excited. I, you know, again, I, I'm a big Kiss Kiss Bang Bang fan, the big Ryan Gosling fan. The trailer looked great. The I just think I remember the the bit with the the cigarette in the bathroom stall and the gun and him trying to like pull the, and just holding the door open was in that trailer a lot. And I was like, this is really up my alley. And it was really up my alley, dear listener. Uh, what about uh, you? I had never seen this before. Mm. Um, and uh, and I suppose right now that we've just covered Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was the only Shane Black movie I had seen, um, the only, or, or, including ones he'd written <laughs> until uh, I watched this for the podcast. So, well, not even Iron, Iron Man 3? Oh, no, I didn't. I've never watched Iron Man 3. I did not like Iron right. Man 2, so I gave a pass to Iron Man 3. It's like a Shane uh, Black Marvel movie, you know? It's, it's yeah. like it's supposed to difference on that pretty well. So, this is a first for me. Um, it's really enjoyable. And uh, and we can thank some amazing chemistry from uh, from Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, the pair that I did not know that I wanted or needed, but um, but they're pretty great. Yeah, and that's something I think uh, we'll probably get into a little bit more. But that he, in the way that he's drawing from these pulp influences, is that both of these movies, I'm like, I would watch twenty more of these. And also going back to. Um, Devil in Blue Dress, right? Where I'm like, you can feel that there's. The, the pairing has uh, our, our buddy PI pairing has a really great set of internal dramatic stakes. That's fun. And you're like, yeah, I'd watch them do stuff forever. And I, and I think Black, feel that Black has about, mentioned that he would want to revisit these guys. Totally. Well, I, was, I could totally yeah. see him doing a, well, this, uh, was doing a pilot, right? this was a long development too. the uh, going back to the early, 2000s um and it's all it's written by by shane black and anthony bagarosi and also draws inspiration from a brett halliday novel uh called blue murder uh but uh yeah it was pitched as a series for cbs originally and their standards and practices department put a halt to it Mm. um i mean i think 
I, could do I think that it probably well, right, uh, but also I feel but like now, when when that was being pitched, I can exactly see why. But now it does it feels like oh, in the current TV landscape, it would fit right in. It'd be a TV show, or like you said, a lemon series. The um, yeah, the I think the other the other interesting thing for me about the fact that with these, I want to see more of them is that compared to like last week with Brick and Kid Detective or going back to Big Lebowski, like those aren't, those are movies that I love and that are great, but I don't feel the need to revisit those worlds, right? Like the, the characters... Let's look how well turned out for Chinatown. The story, well, uh, there's that too, but it, it you know, could, the, it could even have, Chinatown is not a movie where gone. I'm like, yes, I want to watch more. Exactly. Jake Getty's finding out really depressing shit. Like that's not exciting, whereas this is so fun. And again, the, the central pairing, it has so much spark to it that I'm like, yeah, I'll just watch these guys do whatever because it's just so much fun. And and it's it's uh different in the sense that you like want to keep watching Bogart come back and over and over again on the case, but but that's largely because of the the star pairing because of mm-hmm. uh, well then again maybe it isn't it obviously they're not Bogart and Bacall, but Gosling and Crow have their own rapport and and yeah. so is it that different? It's not romantic, but it's uh, it's still about chemistry. It's still about chemistry and and uh, and black uh, black deserves credit for knowing how to get two people that can you know crow crow is just such um, again he's he's that brick wall right he's mm-hmm. the he's the guy that you can't imagine fucking with and Gosling is just a a glorious mess in this movie. A beautiful idiot is one of my my go to phrases for for these kinds of characters. It's, it's <laughs> just delightful the way that he keeps fucking up. Um, yeah, I mean, introduced in a, in a full suit in a bathtub, <laughs> what an entrance, uh, and, you know, and you can see their, their black gets down to business Their They, their collision course is pretty much immediate and, uh, and, and sparks fly from the beginning. They're meant to be together. Maybe they'll carry on and do this, the same thing in the, in the eighties one day. One can only hope, um, yeah, and it's so interesting to, you know, speaking of convincing, convincing you that, you know, Crow, you know, Crow's great performance here. I think it is interesting compared to the kinds of performances that he gave 20, 30 years, like the kinds of characters he was cast as 20 to 30 years earlier. And just the way that he's aged and the way that um, that sort of shapes the, the kinds of it may it may damn well be Russell Crowe's best performance. Um, it just in, in I, I in regards to I mean it's so it's so smartly playing him in a in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know not maybe to the not like quite like like um, Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West kind of different direction, but still like he gets he gets to have actual fun here, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so much of Crowe's um, previous filmography is is so self-serious um but just getting to see him do something that he's clearly enjoying um like it it it's it's topical it's like daniel craig doing doing benoit blanc you can tell he's sure. having such a blast doing it and and that makes a huge difference in performance yeah i mean it seems like everybody's having fun right i think that's part of a shane black script generally is it it gives everybody like a, a little spotlight and a little chance to have fun as long as the, the and he he's so good at very quickly giving a character interesting texture and edge 
Um, and so I, you know, like, you know, and, and the, the cast is so stacked that I was like, the watching this time I was like, Keith, Keith Davis in this. <laughs> like, why? Yeah. He's in this very small part, but even if that I, part, if I'd watched this in, and... in 2016, I would not have known Margaret Qualley, but, um, oh, totally. But... I did not, at the time, I was just like, young Hollywood starlet. Okay. And watching it now, I'm like, that's Margaret Qualley. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, no, ever the, there's just, uh, a, a stacked cast in the the margins here. Every everyone's really given to your point, like given an opportunity to kind of shine and make the most of of small parts. Yeah, um, it's which is watching Matt Bomer get to play like a sociopathic killer, and it uses his uh-huh. beauty in a really interesting way. And I like Matt Bomer. I, you know, uh, White Collar is a really fun turn. You know, just sit back on the couch on a Sunday afternoon and watch kind of TV show that that I enjoyed watching, and I've liked him in a lot of different stuff. Matt, Magic well, Mike, I'm, he's good in, and I am. I'm. Uh, I think I probably mentioned this early on in the in the show, but I'm a big fan of Doom Patrol. So I've, sure, that's he's right. Got, he's got my endorsement. Uh, so no, I think Matt Bomer's like great, but this is a very specific use of his unworldly beauty that I think is is really smart and gets lets him play something different too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, also, I, I, yeah, he stands out as someone that, that gets to, you know, he makes a late entrance, makes a memorable entrance. Um, and, uh, and, and he, he does convey uh, a whole lot of menace, uh, mm-hmm. that I didn't know that he would, uh, I, I didn't know that he could bring quite like, like that. I was so impressed. So, uh, this is not the first time in our, in our podcast that we've gotten to uh, a very similar, uh, undercurrent. Um, big Auto is the big bad here. Not just undercurrent, specifically the collusion <laughs> over catalytic converters. Yep, is <laughs> very specific. The criminal linchpin of both this movie and No Sudden Move. Uh, and uh, and and of course here it's like like in No Sudden Move, it is a Detroit story, and it is and it feels inevitable when it moves there. Um, whereas here we've got an LA movie. That uh, where Detroit is the villain, <laughs> and and I think that's just kind of hilarious. Um, that that that's where we we end up. It like in I, I suppose I'd have to re rewatch, knowing that's where it goes, and and like look look closer it's, at the beginning. But it does feel like it kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, a, little, a little bit like there's it's set up enough to to, to get there, and you can kind of see why because LA is so was so known for smog at the time, right? So there is like. But there's also that, like, the convention is an excuse for all of Detroit to be in L.A. for the climax to happen, right? And and you still don't get, like, a face of Detroit like you do with Matt Damon in No Sudden Move, where it, where you are really in the heart of their power. It, it It's more focused on the impact of L.A. as a car city, I think. Is is the is the stretched line that's sort of connecting these two ideas? It's a car city, um, but it's still a movie city. We just have a mm. very different kind of movie. Yeah. The, uh, we we still can't escape from film industry. We're just dealing with pornography now. Only it's not even the first time in this. Uh, it, it, the, of course, Big Lebowski, same. Well, same going thing. back to Big Sleep, right? Like the yep. the whole point of the. the the start of Big Sleep is that the younger sister is being taken advantage of by a pornographer, and so it's it's always been there. Yeah, it, uh, it's uh, I don't know LA, the things that LA allows to bubble to the forefront. Um, are, I mean, it's just the gift that keeps on giving for this genre. And 
Um, and I'm done with the Detroit angle. I'm, I, I'm being being from Michigan. Like bring bring on Detroit as a bad guy. Why not? It's this is fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it it works. I think it's you know the movie is light and uh, light enough on its feet that you don't mind too much the like the reach for Detroit or the reach for the federal Justice Department bringing that in. Like those aren't very LA, but it's fun and these characters are fun. And so I'm like, sure. All right. That's what and I think part of it too is that it's because it's like it really does feel like an episode, both of these. It feels like that's this episode, and next episode, who knows what it'll be. Whereas I feel like so many other entries again given the idea of like they feel so much more singular and so much more like it's about this space and it's about a detective in LA. It's about a detective going to New Orleans. Or it's about a detective going to Florida. Or it's about a detective in a high school or whatever. And it's and it's about a singular case. And so it feels so much more. Everything needs to be really integral. Whereas here, it's just like this really fun romp with these guys, and you know, maybe we'll do another one. So, uh, so this, I went back and I referenced everything from our whole season, uh, and this. Uh, stood out. I mean, you can tell it by looking at it as being like the budget, the big budget movie relative to everything else. And this, alongside Who Framed Roger Rabbit, were both shot for about fifty million. Well, and, but did you adjust right, for inflation? It, it, I, I did not adjust for inflation, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you can tell where the money is in a very different very way. True. Uh, so that's all. I you know that that's kind of an outlier, but everything else, and even if you adjusted for inflation everything else is skewed way under sure. uh chinatown's like five million um back in in 75 74 uh, and and so and, and you can tell this is this has got money poured into it um, oh, it looks I think fantastic it's, it's such, such a big a, step up from Kiss such Kiss a contrast Bang from Kiss Bang Bang. um and, and and yeah i'm i'm intrigued to talk about this uh specifically like how this plays on the genre because it's not a genre that we've ever really associated with having a, a big budget to work sure. with. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, just last episode, we talked about all that brick got away with for under half a million. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's coming from a genre that we are used to like directors having to be very creative with their effects, with their thrills, uh, with uh, with with what money they have to stretch out a long ways. Um, this uh, and I'm sure a sizable portion went to pay Crow and and Gosling, no doubt about that. But uh, but you know he's clearly got money to play with here, and you can tell that in the action set pieces. Yeah, and I think that's the that feels like the aesthetic touch point is the action set pieces. It is the you know really well-made 80s action blockbusters that Black made his name on the first part of his career, where it is like, there's not a lot stylistically that is that is happening here or aesthetically that is that is kind of expressionistic and, and getting to that element of noir, but it is just like really, really well executed and the geography, the action scenes make sense and... You can like it, it. Just looks good without. I do appreciate without... that massively. Yes, it's, and it, yeah, <laughs> it, it's something that's increasingly lost in a lot of modern action. No, you can tell like everything. Everything always makes sense, and you know it looks good without getting into like I think some on the indie side and the art house side recently. There's been a move towards like 
the every frame of painting mindset to like the nth degree where you're you're literally like just sculpting moments to be visually arresting without thinking about narrative function and this is just like supremely well designed for narrative function it's like these shots look good but they the point isn't that they look good the point is we're telling the story and this is the shot that best communicates the story and the relationship between these characters and the tone and the beat that i'm trying to get across in this moment right very very efficient um and and you'll you you i think are a bit more familiar with black than i am clearly um but i haven't i haven't gotten the sense from the the snippets i've read uh from him talking about about this or about kiss kiss bang bang or anything um i don't think he takes his uh i don't think he takes his success for granted mm-hmm. i don't think he yeah it's not you know just to just to throw out the the relevant current example it's not james cameron saying like i will do i will do whatever i i want because mm-hmm. i can because i because i've earned it um like i think that my daddy I, paid for this building <laughs> yes i think that that black is very aware that you know ever he's he's um, he's got to earn every single movie that he's in. And I think he, it seems like he's got that approach here. He's nothing, I think especially, nothing you know, he had it was an incredible run as a screenwriter from the 80s into the 90s. And then he cooled off. And there's definitely a period of time pre-Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where as a writer, he was just not the, you know, $4 million, $5 million spec sale guy. And part of that, too, is just where... Hollywood as a as a screening market went like that also just kind of went away. Um, but it's it, I totally buy that he that he kind of as he got older gained that feeling of like and especially reinventing himself as a director too and coming in and and you know you're I feel like as a director you're a little bit more on the line than you are as a screenwriter. Like as a screenwriter, if you get the movie made and it's not awful, you're like okay great like you you can put together the pieces for a movie to get made. And that's ultimately the function of a screenwriter. And if it's better than that, great. And that, that that's even more to your credit. Whereas a director, I feel like it's a much more like your name is on it. Like people aren't going to pay attention to who the writer is outside of Hollywood, but they will pay attention to who the director is. And if you fuck up, that is on you. Yes, indeed. Uh, I don't even know. Does Black have anything in the the pipeline that he's working on? I uh, I don't know. Um, I, I I don't know what he's got. I, like I I do want to root for for the guy. Yeah, he, I like I like. I the, think he did because there was something after. I could have sworn there was something the after the Predator that was um that was back out of the IP tool. You know, play. Um, uh, the IP sandbox and back into. Yeah. Oh, he's got, I mean, there, there's uh, another lethal weapon coming up. So that would be, oh, uh, yeah. I suppose the, uh, but he's, he is just writing that Mel Gibson is directing it. Well, I don't think he was, uh, I think he wrote like the first one and then he wrote the second one, but got rewritten on the second one. And then I think he just has like a, you know, based on characters by for the third and fourth or something like that. Hmm. That makes sense. Uh, he did story for those, so I think it is it is kind of a big deal that he went back to screener, but but fair enough that he's he's still trapped in the same IP world right. that the rest of Hollywood is. Uh, and you know it's good it's it's nice in in that in, in that world where you know he's he where someone like some of his talents is getting used to do Iron Man three is getting used to do another Predator 
um, that that he can create something like Nice Guys that is that does stand on its own. That uh, it, you know, it, that's just a, a really solid, fun romp um, that is not beholden to any pre- previous franchise, and that's getting by on uh, on the considerable charms of Gosling and Crow here. Uh, agreed. Bringing our our two films together and bringing Shane Black together because again, this is we haven't been we haven't been doing like a single director. Um, I think it's fun to to like analyze this not specifically through the lens of what one one vision is bringing to the table here, and I uh, I I think that in in the noir lens, uh, to me, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang hits the the truer mark on that front, mostly because it's not it's not juggling. Like, I feel like Nice Guys adds in more comedy and more Mm -hmm. action. And so it's juggling a little bit more, more genre, um, to, to find that balance. So Kiss Kiss Bang Bang hits more as a, a a noir for me. Yeah, it's it's referencing a little more referential to that, too. Like, there's also, we didn't even get to like, there's a Sunset Boulevard reference in, uh, you know, he's narrating, but he's face first in the pool. And oh, oh, how did we, how did I not? Um, mention the the big heat reference in nice guys though oh yeah i didn't even what's, what's oh the big God. heat reference i saw you, you the um the the hot coffee when she throws the oh yeah of throws course. the coffee in the in the kitchen and it's just cold and and doesn't do anything but then she ends up slipping on it anyway um oh, that, yeah in uh yeah in yeah, yeah. In, in nice guys yeah um i that that was a well done uh reference uh, I I appreciated that greatly. Um, and also, I, 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 if we're yeah. just revisiting, um, I think the interesting thing about, and we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Chinatown, is that we've now reached the point where the retro noir is being retro to when the new noir started, rather than when the noir started. Right? Like this is a period piece set in the seventies, and we'll see this again in a few episodes with. Um, inherent vice where it's now you know against it's still you know 50 years earlier instead of 30 years earlier with with chinatown and and um farewell my lovely but it is like like it's interesting to see even the retro noir move or with devil in a blue dress which was 50 set 50 years earlier you know we're now 50 years earlier is now the 70s and so it, it's it's interesting how much how that's shaping things as well yeah um, and, and even Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is set in present day, but it, it, like the opening titles conjures like a, a, a 60s era aesthetic. Um, and, and there's still some, there's some attempt to like kind of weave in elements from the past there. Uh, nice guys obviously just full on embraces the, the 70s right. gloriousness. Um, and, and it's totally why I, I can, I can see Black gets another shot at this, him, him going all 80s and, more of yep. a Miami Vice type angle for for watching for another decade. Uh, but I'm sorry, we were getting into no. looking at Shane Black's approach to noir. Yeah, um, what else jumps out to you from from what he's bringing as an auteur? Yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously the the buddy comedy, the action comedy, um, the uh, as sort of as we talked about aesthetically he's not as in like he's interested in really functional storytelling but not like 
expressionistic storytelling. Um, but I think that also is very true to the pulp sensibility, right? Like outside of Kiss Me Deadly, the rest of the My Camera movies are also not that expressionistic. They are, and also sometimes not that functional, but when they are functional, it is sort of in a similar camp of like, we're just going to deliver the two-fisted pleasures that you're looking for. Except here, the two-fisted pleasure is as much about the fist flying as it is about the jokes coming out before and after. Yeah. Uh, I I just, uh, and I, I guess I knew this from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but like I, I walk away just being impressed that uh, watching a director uh, a, a director working today having having that good of a grasp on movie star chemistry because um, because it's you know that we have we have our we have our share of movie stars of course but they're they're very much in the Marvel kind of mm-hmm. uh, you know you have people are superheroes and people have these larger than life characters whereas this is a case where you're just watching Ryan Gosling it doesn't matter what their names are you're watching Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe and they're killing it, and it's because they are just feeding off each other's energy so well. Um, and and that's the same kind of pleasure you get when you're watching Bogart and and Bacall, but without the you know smoldering romance. Right? No, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, that his scripts is. I mean, that's it's true. Going back to Lethal Weapon, right? Like that is a movie about Mel Gibson's star power, and it, I think it's it's true as a through line for a lot of his movies that they are about performance showcases. And I think it's. Like with Tarantino, Shane Black started off wanting to be an actor. Like he is in the original Predator as an actor um, and supposedly did rewrites on set. And so I think that is he knows how to write to give an actor a gift. And if you cast well and bring in somebody who's got star power, then they can really take advantage of that opportunity and make the most of that gift. And something that we lose a lot when we talk about modern day directors, auteurs, and all that, um, when you, when you're looking back at the old studio system, um, it, people will bring up the Billy Wilders and the Howard Hawks uh, that that are just really good at at, at getting charisma, charismatic A list actors to do their thing together and and bringing that out. And we don't talk about that element because we, I think we get so, when we're talking about directors in a modern context, we were so caught up in like in aesthetic and in, in overall feel that we lose a little bit of like what, because, because the realm of movie stars, especially multiple movie stars altogether is generally big budget uh, superhero movies or uh, you know, maybe I guess even now we're kind of past the romantic comedy boom where yeah. we we just don't see that as often yeah and i think it's a part of it too is the uh something film crit hulk points to a lot in his essays of like the um not tangible but the um why can't they afford to use most of it's called the tangible details right like these are easily accessible things that you can point to and say like that looks good or this visually is repeating what the other thing did, or it's funny in the same way. And I, I think it's it's easier to assess those as through lines for a director and a director's identity than it is some of these more intangible elements like being able to utilize star power. Um, and so I, I think that just sort of, like I said, gets lost. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. It's just not. It, it, so anyway, I'm walking away from this really wanting to give Shane Black his due and wishing that he would get more shots at, at directing original scripts yeah. like this. Something uh, something that's not beholden to a franchise because I want to see what he does. Well, good news uh, is we'll have a few more of his movies at different points in different seasons, I am I am sure. Yes, indeed. Huh. Um, any other parting thoughts? Uh, just, I think, like, I kind of mentioned with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, this relationship to women, like, Michelle Monaghan is, is great, but, like, it it feels like it kind of is on Harry's side that, like, it's mostly fucked up women who wind up in LA and get naked for strangers so that they can make it in movies. And like, you know, the cutaway gag with the the actress who's in a horror movie. And then it's just, just, then we show her topless and she's getting her head knocked off. And, you know, like it feels like that relationship to women is a little bit more cynical and, and bitter than it is in the nice guys. And maybe in part because the daughter's along for the ride, which is another classic shame blackism of, of the kid character. Um, and but also I think like you know uh, Margaret Qualley is like a little bit more fleshed in as a character, and even Missy Mountains is isn't just a joke. Like it it's it's kind of respectful of like sex work in general. Um, and so you know I, I I don't know it's just sort of an interesting those fifteen years how it may have shifted his his relationship to women or how he writes them or or what have you. Yeah, I think that's uh, I, you, you can clearly see an, an evolution in that. And, and I, uh, yeah, not, I, I think, I think having the daughter along grounds, I mean, it just, it helped, it helps shift the perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Gets a little so more hard too. Yeah, it does. Without, without going overboard, it's pitched pretty well. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, uh, I'm, I'm excited to do more, uh, director matchups too, at some point, because th- this yeah. was, this was nice. It was nice change of pace uh but let's uh let's bring it home let's get to our, our recurring segment what's in the box fred in honor of kiss me deadly what's something you watched recently it's so good it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase uh so i watched uh luca guadalino's bones and all and really loved it and especially the final 15 minutes or so the final shot even i mean honestly the final shot was something that knocked the whole movie up a peg in my rating and um was really bowled me over but as as a movie it is it is weird and follows its own rhythm but it is moving as well and and is rich with subtext while still delivering on the ghouls traveling across america uh of of the text itself and you know i think it is a, it's one of those it's not a 24 horror movie but it might as well be and how it's like if you're a classic horror fan coming into this, you're like, this isn't what I wanted. And if you're like, if you love Call Me By Your Name, you're like, this is not what I wanted either. But if you are into what this movie is doing, it's it's really going to do something for you, I think. Are you a Luca fan? You know, I've only seen... Actually, I've seen three movies so far. I've seen Call Me By Your Name, which I enjoyed, but I did not enjoy as much as the book. I did like a Suspiria remake. Uh, but this is easily my favorite of those three. I have not seen A Bigger Splash or I Am Love. You guessed which one's my favorite of his. <laughs> um, uh, including A, a Bigger yeah. Splash and I Am Love? Mm-hmm. Is this a Suspiria remake? No, it's A Bigger Splash. No, it's <laughs> um, I, which is probably not the conventional 
I don't know. I've oh, heard very good I, things. I do want to watch like that it. movie, but um, it's good. It's got a it's got a great Tilda uh, performance and a great Ray Fiennes supporting performance. It's probably very polarizing to a lot of people, um, but uh, but that's my favorite. I do like the Suspiria remake, and Call Me by Your Name is is good. I guess um, I don't. Love I think it. by the time I watched it, it got overhyped a bit. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm excited to see Bones and All. I have not seen it yet. No, I, I, it really it really did it for me. So I am excited to finally go back and watch I Am Love and, and a bigger splash. I'm a, I'm a fan of the cannibal genre. So, uh, well, mostly a fan of the cannibal genre. <laughs> um, huh, um, I, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out. Uh, uh, well, I did I did catch up on on Flux Gourmet, which which you had had seen and. And sure enough, it is uh, it is quite good. Uh, I I don't know that it's my favorite Strickland, but I, I think I liked it more than you did. But you I, I appreciated it uh, a whole lot. And for the, for the Strickland uh, aficionados out there, not one yeah. of us. If you're yeah, not a Strickland, exactly. this isn't going to change your mind about him, though. If you nope. if you've not enjoyed his stuff in the past. Um. Uh. But but yeah, the most recent of the of the late year catch up. I, I've seen is pop. I mean, probably Glass Onion, which I thoroughly enjoyed, but knew I would thoroughly enjoy. Um, a lot of fun. It's, it's more just, of a comedy this time around. Yeah, um, it's just watching a massive cast of very, very talented people getting to do their thing, and um, and Ryan Johnson getting to be absurdly clever, and uh, and totally skewering Elon Musk in the process. Oh well, yeah, what's the, not the, to love? It it really pays that off well. But the, <laughs> yeah, the first half has. Like it, it kind of shifts focus a little bit, but the first half, like Ryan Johnson, is just flexing as a director in a way that is exhilarating. I was watching with my wife, and I just kept being like, "My God, this man is yeah. unstoppable." Then in the back half, he kind of like eases up a little bit on that, because probably because you have to kind of really pay attention to make sure you're following all the reveals that are that are happening in the back half. But uh, the first half is is. So much fun. It kind of reminds me of um, Looper in that way, because I think the first act of Looper, too, is just Ryan Johnson directing like he's not going to get to direct again. And you're just like, by God, this guy has so much talent. Yeah, um, no, you're totally right. Fortunately, the second half um, gets give, gives us a wonderful Janelle Monet. Um, oh, the second half has its own players. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Like, it's so much more about the performances and, and the reveals. And, um, but, uh, so yeah, like the second half is much more of a, a writing showcase. And the first half is more of a directing showcase, I'd say. And across the board, it's just great actors having fun with really big characters. And and a sweatpants joke that is probably my favorite joke of the year that was deployed. Oh, the, yes. oh. Um, Kate Hudson doing wonderful things. Uh, she is great. Like a little every, in, a, in a cast that's all really given their all. What Kate Hudson is doing is delightful. Yes. Um, yeah. Good. Good for her. Uh, every, everyone's really making the most of it. I, um, I absolutely love Jessica Henwick too. Just, um, just having the, I think the best reaction shots I've seen anyone give in, in ages. Like if you're going to do a lot with a performance, that doesn't have a lot of lines, just that be the, be the person reacting to all of the craziness around you like that. And it was glorious. Um, and, and Daniel Craig, um, doing his, his foghorn leghorn thing and, and um, I'm there for it. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, clearly some good things to catch up on um, as as uh, as 2022 movies are put behind us, and we look forward to the next year. 
So thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We will see you next time when we drop the humor in favor of some no-frills genre work with the likes of Liam Neeson and a couple of athletes. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>